Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin. I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis and protect the environment. Did you know that Purple Martins almost exclusively nest in birdhouses? That fact got our next guest thinking what happens when people quit putting up these birdhouses? In this episode, we chat with Eco Tour operator Zach Steinhauser. For the past year and a half, he has traveled all across the country, chasing purple martins from the Great Lakes to the deserts of the Southwest in search of the last remaining natural nesting martins and to understand what people can do to keep these species around. He just recently returned from an expedition to Brazil, where these birds are known to spend the winter months in the tropics of the Amazon rainforest. The Purple Martin's relationship with man and vice versa certainly opens up a larger conversation about how we integrate with our environment and what happens when that changes. Using Purple Martin's as a means to explore this question is fascinating. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Okay, welcome to Zach Steinhauser. Welcome to the Eco Interviews. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? We're doing well. We are both located around Columbia, South Carolina, but we're right in the middle of the coronavirus. So we're doing our social distancing interview over Zoom. So this is this is part of the course, actually. Most of my interviews have been with people overseas, but um, I was hoping to do it in person, but we make do with what we have to do right now. Yeah. Well, Zach is an eco-tour operator based out of Lexington, South Carolina, who for the past three years has been taking tourists to view North America's largest purple martin migration roost. And you just recently returned from an expedition to Brazil, where these birds are known to spend the winter months in the tropics of the Amazon rainforest. Now, there's lots of stuff that happens in between you being a tour operator and going to Brazil. But let's start with the background about yourself. Tell us about you, Zach, and then how you became interested in Purple Martins and started the eco tours on Lake Murray, correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I guess how I got into Purple Martins, uh, I grew up uh, my family's from here. And so I grew up when we would come to visit, uh, my grandparents, we would go out to see the purple Martins on the lake. And it was just kind of the thing to do, uh, here in the Lake Murray, Columbia area. And, um, every summer for like three months, just purple Martins, uh, this little bird just all gather up on, uh, this one little Island called bomb Island out in the middle of it and uh people just go and we'll spend like a good two hours out on the water enjoying the sunset watching the birds hoping they don't get pooped on um and yeah and so i grew up doing that and um never really thought twice about that phenomena or anything like that and went on into college got my degree in uh, wildlife ecology and conservation because i I've grown up loving wildlife. I'm a loyal follower of Steve Irwin um, and uh, just wanted to be him. And so, uh, yeah, just came out of college wanting to be a wildlife biologist, but kind of saw, saw some issues there, had a crisis of faith with that whole field and um, got home and uh, started working for Wingard's Market, which is a local garden center here in Lexington. And, uh, one night we were out at, uh, bomb Island and I was with my folks, we were on their boat and they were saying, um, they wish like businesses would pop up and start doing tours or something like that. Cause 
Uh, and so that seed was planted and we had to sit on it for about a year because it was at the end of the season. And then when it came time to uh, kind of get things rolling, uh, and I want to say we started like that March or February uh, at my job uh, working at a garden center, I work as a naturalist. And so we just kind of provide opportunities for people to view wildlife in their backyard. And this is like kind of the ultimate form of that job. And so, um, I approached my bosses and I asked them, uh, cause they're big purple Martin advocates and we got to talking and, um, they love the idea of being able to run boat tours out to go see the purple Martins and running it through the business and, uh, started, ca um, we found a captain, a local captain in the area who was legally allowed to run these tours. And we just chartered three nights a week. Uh, and we sold out in our first season. It was incredible. We thought there would be no demand, but we were, uh, we kind of opened Pandora's box with it. And so, um, yeah. And I guess my specific interest with Martins came when I started my job as a naturalist. Um, I was at a trade show, uh, looking for different products to sell uh, for backyard wildlife at our shop and came, we were listening to, I think it was the host or one of the speakers who was talking and he made the mention that all purple Martins are born in a birdhouse. And it just kind of like, I heard that and it just kind of hit me. I was like, wait, what? Um, and so, uh, after that talk, I approached the speaker and I was like, is that true? And he confirmed uh, his statement to me. And then luckily there was a uh, specific nonprofit that focused with Purple Martins uh, called the Purple Martin Conservation Association. And uh, I went to their representative. I uh, asked them the same question. It was like, is that true? And they confirmed that with me. And if I'm hearing this from multiple sources, I was like, holy crap. Um, and it all just kind of uh, kickstarted with me because I'm conservation minded. So I'm like all about trying to save whatever wildlife is in trouble. Uh, and it kicked my butt into gear about wanting to like push heavy on purple Martin products at the shop. And then also just kind of be a voice for them in my area. Um, and so, yeah, and that's where kind of, um, that all started. That was about three and a half years ago. And, um, Every tour I take, I always tell people that every bird we see out uh, out at the island was born in a birdhouse and make it a point to show people uh, what a purple martin house looks like um, while we're out on the lake because people usually have them set up. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's that's incredibly interesting. Um, and tell us more about the purple martins then, about their ha their natural habitats. And I'm not even aware of the season of when they're at Lake Murray. So can you give us a little bit of like – obviously they're born in a, in a birdhouse. So they're, when are they born? Right. When are they born? And then what is their migration pattern? Cause it obviously goes all the way down to Brazil. So tell us yeah. a bit more about that. Yeah. So purple Martins, they're a, what's technically called a neotropical migratory songbird. So it's basically a bird that will spend uh, a certain percentage of the year at point a, uh, because environmental factors, are very favorable to them. And then when seasons and factors shift or change, they will go elsewhere to uh, basically to warmer weather uh, where uh, those fact the factors are 
uh, similar, if not better, than where they were at point A uh, down to point B. So uh, martins themselves have, they're experiencing all different kinds of habitats. Uh, and the reason why they're kind of going back and forth on their migration is because they're uh, chasing insects. Uh, so they're basically for a martin, they would say classified as an aerial insectivore. And that means whatever's flying around insect wise, it's food to them. And so they're eating butterflies, dragonflies, uh, beetles, moths, uh, wasps, and bees. Uh, and so they're going back and forth. They're basically chasing the bugs. And that's how migratory songbird migration uh, I just did a double positive there, but that's how songbird migration evolved. Uh, birds were just chasing bugs uh, in favorable conditions, and with uh, and a lot of people like to think when they're moving back and forth, they're nesting at both places. That's not true. Uh, it's been found out that when birds are migrating from the tropics of like South America and Central America and they're coming up to North America. Um, it, they are only nesting in North America. And so uh, basically when you have kind of this giant influx of warm weather with insects and perfect conditions, perfect temperatures uh, is the base, best place to uh, have a family. No. Um, that's where migratory songbirds are nesting is up here. And then when they migrate down, they're um, basically training up their uh, nestlings after they hatch. And then they all have to make their way down. And then their nestlings, when they make their way to the end, uh, their end destination, that's where they learn to basically become whatever species they are. Thousands of bird species migrate all around the world, whether it's through North America and South America or through Africa uh, into Europe, um, or even in Asia and Australia. So, yeah, I remember I lived in uh, Venezuela about 10 years ago and they would had big murals of the Cardinals on this side of the buildings. And I was like, that reminds me of South Carolina. We have Cardinals too. So obviously the Cardinals are going back and forth between South Carolina and Venezuela. And similarly, the Martins are doing, I, uh, Lake Murray, I would think in the hot time. So is that May until August, September, and then they go to Brazil the other part of the year? Yeah, so the season for uh, Martins on Lake Murray, so when they're gathering up at Bomb Island, is I classify it from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That's just kind of when I see significant numbers all there. But they may be there a little bit earlier, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, but the thing with Bomb Island is that Martins aren't nesting there. They're just kind of using that island as a pit stop along their migration back down to South America. So where, where's their northern point? Where do they actually nest? Uh, so Martins can, their nesting range is from South Florida all the way up to Southern Canada and then out to the Rockies. And then you have some populations on the West Coast as well, going up to kind of similar range maps, Southern Cali all the way up to uh, Vancouver. Yeah, that's like the border city with Portland, Seattle. That one. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's two things I'm thinking about in terms of human interaction. You mentioned that they live on flying insects. So does uh, humans' use of pesticides and home pesticide is very popular. Does that affect them at all? Um, with home pesticide, I 
Not as much. Uh, it affects other birds and other wildlife that you can find around the house for sure. But um, it's more so in agricultural settings. So Martins themselves like really open areas. So an agricultural field, a prairie, uh, lake, river, um, they're all very favorable. And so um, what's happening is all these farmers are spraying pesticides and they're also using a pesticide known as a neonicotinoid so it's a systemic and it works its way into the seed of a plant then it's basically just a toxic plant bugs will use it like pollinate it or uh sip the nectar and they're ingesting that toxin and then you have that uh poison moving from the uh insect into the martin which is feeding on those insects and so uh, when all these martins just gather up and eat so much toxic food, I mean, they're going to uh, basically expire. And we're seeing a huge drop off right now on populations of native um, songbirds that are grassland birds. So like sparrows and larks and stuff like that, as well as the aerial insectivores like martins and swallows and swifts and stuff like that, because um, it, and all the evidence is pointing to kind of those feeding habits are affecting those birds. Mm, thanks for shining a light on that. That's important for people to understand. Um, and then the other aspect of human interaction, you mentioned that the uh, all purple martins are born in birdhouses, man-made birdhouses. So yep. Obviously, man-made birdhouses are a fairly recent human invention, let's say the last hundred years. What, what were they doing before that? And what cause this change so when martin's nest they're what's classified as a secondary cavity nester so uh, a primary cavity nester example would be that of a woodpecker woodpeckers drill holes into uh, dead trees or sometimes living trees and they nest and raise their babies in there and they're the first kind of go into that cavity that uh, they were that they created and then either later that season or uh, the next year, next nesting season, uh, a purple martin, or the best example is a bluebird. It's a birdie, uh, easy bird, backyard bird to identify. You stick a birdhouse out for it, um, and they'll nest in it. But, yeah, so they are sec what's known as secondary cavity nesters. So there's the cavity that's already there, something's already nested in it, and then another species moves in that didn't create the hole. And that's what martins are classified as. And they, um, that's where they would naturally nest. And so when you had rivers and lakes uh, that had old snags that uh, woodpeckers would drill into, they were also in very wide open areas and had a lot of bug life. So martins would just naturally uh, go to those kind of wetland areas um, and uh, just take, take, make use of those available cavities. Now, the thing about birdhouses is that they were first documented by at least purple martin houses. They were first documented by I want to say Audubon um, when he in his travels. They uh, the first couple tribes that he uh, discovered this phenomena with was the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations, um, and the uh, what the tribes were doing was they would erect hot or grow gourds and then they would dry them out. They would uh, cut a hole in them and hollow them out. That way they would then uh, hang them up all around their crop fields. And then that way 
uh, you would attract the cavity nesters like martins and other cavity, uh, cavity nesting birds like bluebirds and tree swallows. Um, and the reason they would do this is because with their agriculture back then, we didn't have pesticides or anything to keep the bugs down. So the more predators of bugs we had, uh, the more food we would then have for a harvest that would last us throughout the winter. So uh, that's kind of where the start of Purple Martin housing came to be. And then colonials came and adopted the tradition. They started building these giant condo boxes that had, you, if you Google them, you'll find some that have like 50 something compartments in one giant ornate box house. Um, and then others are just more uh, reserved and based, functional and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so uh well, it's interesting that gourd shape you mentioned because I I am definitely not an an expert on birds. Uh, we do have some bluebird houses out this year, and I just kind of look at my yard and I don't know the difference between the different bird houses. But I've watched parts of your film and I see those purple martin houses, and I that's so interesting that that was a, a Native American uh, tradition brought through from the gourds. It's super yeah. interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to grow gourds and put them out. I don't know if we get purple martins where I am or not. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, yeah. But yeah. And so, yeah, uh, with martins and the whole thing with martins becoming near exclusive birdhouse nesters, that's due to as colonials came, um, they would hang out uh, gourds and put these boxes up, but they would also clear a lot of land. Uh, to make room for their farms and stuff like that. And uh, the problem with that was one year Martin's nesting in a snag in a cavity uh, that was in a pristine wetland or open field. And then the next year, uh, or then they migrate, and uh, at the, while they're gone, colonials move in, clear the whole land, completely change it. And then the Martin comes back to the same exact spot where their tree was, and it's no longer there. And so now they're like, where do I go? Look, we got lucky in the sense that they were able to adopt this artificial housing. Cause if they weren't able to adopt to it or adjust to it, odds are Martins might not be around um, as much. They might be outcompeted or might have been outcompeted to extinction uh, if they couldn't adopt to this uh, artificial setting. So we got lucky with them in the first place, but um, now today, as we have all these farms that had birdhouses out for them, a lot of those older generations and as urban sprawls becoming a thing, those older generations are no longer around. And so and more suburbs are moving into old farmland and stuff like that. We're kind of losing habitat again. Um, so, yeah, now we're at a point where we have a species that's totally dependent on our action to uh, ensure its uh, survival. Mm. It's so interesting. It, this might not exist. Was there? Is there any research into population fluctuations between going from the old trees to the houses? Like, was there? A, did that increase the population of martins? And it, this might not exist because it was a while ago. I yeah. don't know. I don't know about like actual documented numbers uh, and data, um, but. I've spoken with DNR a couple of times about just multiple farm species, farmland, grassland species. Uh, and what they've told me is that there was a set number and when we kind of cleared and altered habitats for farmland, a lot of those farmland, grassland species, they boomed because there's just that much more 
habitat there for them. And now it's kind of at a point where we've started doing a lot more efficient pesticide use, um, which is having environmental ramifications. And now we're kind of at the urban sprawl area as well. And is uh, also just kind of habitat mismanagement or not taking care of the land as properly. And so a lot of those uh, farm species are now bringing, coming back down at much steeper rates than uh, we were anticipating. So. Mm-hmm. so obviously all of this has put you on the journey to do this documentary film, Purple Haze, right? Yeah. So, and it's about the plight of the Purple Martins, which we've discussed a little bit, but feel yeah. free to go into it more. What have you learned on this journey and, and what are like some really important takeaways as you've traveled North yeah. and South America following these birds? Yeah, I never thought I would care so much about a species I never thought twice of uh, <laughs> when I um uh, starting this journey. Um, but it, let's see, I guess what got me started was I always wanted to be a filmmaker, wildlife filmmaker, and I thought um, it could be as easy as just kind of jumping in or finding the right camera crew uh, and going off on adventure that way. That was not the case, but luckily I found out about uh, the Martins and it was just right in my backyard. So it was super accessible and super easy for me to start. Um, and so uh, jumping into that, I started doing research and finding out, just kind of wanted to learn as much as I could about Purple Martins and tell the story correctly. And uh, find it, like I'm finding out, uh, really cool things about just kind of their migration, where they're going, the routes. I can't really release cool pieces of it because I don't want to spoil the film, nor uh, there's also ongoing research that um, needs that data uh, private till they can publish. Um, but yeah, so a lot of their, like a lot of their places they go on their routes, I never would have thought of. Um, but it's also fun to see like, towns and cities that you live in that Martins uh, are using or stopping by or flying through close uh, on their route. Um, And then also just kind of how diverse this bird is. So this is a species that is, uh, like I said, uh, like I mentioned, covers just about all of North America and where it's found, except for the, I mean, take away the Rocky Mountains and the Canadian Arctic and it's pretty much everywhere. Um, and, uh, the great thing about Martins is that they have a couple subpopulations on the West coast. They don't nest in birdhouses. So they still have those wild natural tendencies. Um, and that they're, I mean, they're just super adaptable. I found them in the deserts of the Sonoran desert in Tucson, Arizona, like where literally I could barely be out in the sun an hour without wanting to die. And these birds are flying around miles every day uh in 110 plus degree weather um and they're still i mean they're thriving and it just goes to show how durable the species is um how flexible and adaptable they are uh not only that but uh birds that i see here in my backyard i've seen them in brazil and so it it was nice to, I guess, with the uh, expedition to Brazil, just being able to connect with t- complete strangers about this one species that we both see in our backyards. Um, 
What do they call it in Brazil? What's the Portuguese for the blue martin? For the purple uh, martin? They call it um, Andorinha Azur. Okay. The, I like blue swallow, but um, yeah, so that's the Portuguese for uh, purple martin. And then um, not only just the, I guess, martin itself, but just kind of the culture that comes with purple martins. Like some people with purple martins are, some people are leisure and then some people are diehard. Uh, and they'll uh, set up tons of birdhouses. There's a guy I know in Alabama. Um, his name's Joey Johnson. Him and his grandfather run what's called Johnson's World's Largest Purple Martin Colony. And they have over 2,000 purple martin houses set up on their property. And it's literally like just being in a city of birds. Um, and they do one big event every year uh, called their Jamboree. And it's usually in June. I'm hoping Corona doesn't mess with it too much uh, this year. And um, it's, I mean, just being around the people and understanding the culture of Purple Martins, it kind of, to me, I don't have, like, I've tried to do some research into, uh, I guess, the way Purple Martins have affected American culture because literally kind of from, I'd say, 1800s to within the past 50 to hundred years, like purple Martins were like kind of the backyard hobby for a lot of people. Cause we were in a much rural setting. And so everybody that knew each other had purple Martin houses, basically all farmlands had it. Neighbors had it. They would get into competitions with one another and want to have more purple Martins in their uh, colonies. And the crazy thing is that um, conservation of this species was basically a hobby. Um, which was very, it was something that just kind of made me smile and made me happy about it. Uh, it's sad to see that that hobby is kind of dwindling off right now, as most people don't know, uh, or these kind of cultures and techniques and traditions don't get passed on to younger generations. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, Purple Martin people, they love their birds, put it that way. Uh, <laughs> I know one woman, she sits in her backyard just about every day looking out for her Martins. She's going to be in the film. Um, and so there's that. There's also people who are very passionate about them, that they work in their communities to set up colonies around uh, just to give the birds exposure and recruit kind of recruit people to their causes as well. So. Oh, great. It sounds like the Purple Martin needs a little PR push, and I'm hoping that your documentary, Purple Haze, will be able to do that and generate some interest. I know one thing I find a silver lining on the corona situation is that people are starting to look back at those traditions. So we grow our own vegetables in our garden, and now all of a sudden everyone wants to grow vegetables because we're stuck at home and we can't go to the grocery store like we're used to. Yep. And maybe, hopefully, there's also a, a backyard conservancy, conservancy sort of um, vein to that as well, understanding what's in our yards and around us and, and living in harmony with that. So here's Absolutely. hoping. Yeah. <laughs> And so how does, let's expand this out a little bit. How does the story of Purple Martins and this human interaction that seems to be happening um, in terms of their houses and their habitat, how is that, how does that depict man's evolving relationship with nature? That's something you had on your website that I'd be interested to explore. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'd say Purple, Mar Purple Martins are, and people are kind of like, 
the hobby itself and like actual landlording is what they call it of purple martins i me personally i feel like that's the embodiment of man's connection to nature because uh but it's also that connection kind of has a rough past dark past um because now we've cleared like we've basically um crap i'm totally having a brain fart on the word right now domesticated um we've domesticated a species essentially quasi domesticated and it's at the point now where they're totally dependent on us to take care of it. And that is somewhat of a symbol to what is going on to the rest of the world. I'm just trying to use purple Martins as like a small uh, way to kind of like a look at the world through a grain of sand uh, type of example, uh, because now we have something we have to totally take care of but it's something very easy to take care of. All you have to do is put up a bird or put up a series of birdhouses for this one species and you can help keep them around. Um, it's, and so by doing something as simple as that, you can have repercussions later on down the line through like insect control, but take it a step further, like start plant a native plant in your garden. That's going to cut down on your water use and your uh, irrigation. That's going to, purify your air a little bit better. It's going to prevent your house from if there was ever like a 50,000 year flood where all of South Carolina washes away, there's more roots deeper in the soil to keep your keep your uh, ground more intact. Uh, I know that's a dramatic example, but it's not that dramatic after 2015. Come on. We were both, both here for October, 2015, weren't we? Um, I was actually, that was my senior year of college. So I had to call my folks. I was like, are y'all all right? Uh, <laughs> um, but it was pretty wild. Like yeah. our, we were fine. We live on the side of a hill, but even our backyard after four straight days of that amount of rain was starting to flood. And I was like, yeah. well, no wonder the city of Columbia is underwater. And, yeah. um, yeah, the creek, the 25 mile creek that runs close to us was a river. And it, it was, um, I live in Lugoff, little tiny town. And yeah. uh, they had CNN reporter in waders in the local golf course where me and my husband met so showing this flood. And they actually had to shut down that golf course. So that, um, <laughs> that flood always reminds me of the place where me and my husband met. And then yeah. now it doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of sad. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's like, yeah, being able to do simple things um, to do to uh, have a much greater impact in the environment, and like it's starting to show kind of now with everybody in, cooped up inside, or all the park wild parks are closed uh, to the public. Um, I know there's some there's some like fake viral accounts that have kind of created a mess, but national parks are seeing a lot more, a lot higher wildlife activity. Uh, in their parks than previously reported. I think I saw somewhere in Thailand, like monkeys are moving into the city and it's like just a whole street gang. Um, so yeah, so just by like our absence is able to have such a pronoun uh, or astounding effect um, on the environment. And so, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to raise awareness to teach people how to do the little things that have a much bigger payoff. Yeah, I think part of this, and this is themes I've been exploring through courses I've taken and books I'm reading. I just finished um, Tending the Wild. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Uh, who's the author? 
Hold on. Okay. <laughs> get that for you. So it's uh, Kat Anderson. This is a great book. Okay. Who wants to read that? Tending the Wild. I got you. Yeah. And it's about, uh, it's, it's pretty intense research into the um, Indian, California Indians yeah. and their relationship with the land. And so, um, it, and I also just finished doing a, an interview with someone who was talking about Aldo Leopold and him saying that if we treat land as a commodity, then we'll never take care of it. Once we understand that yeah. it's our community, then we will learn to love it and take care of it. And that's not the exact quote. I don't know the quote off the top of my head, but that's the idea behind it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It's something I've been exploring myself because I do think we have a, um, an interesting relationship because we use land as a commodity that we it's two extremes it's either um hyper exploitation of resources which leads to degeneration a lot of the environmental issues we have and then there's the other um uh, conservation movement maybe that is fencing it off and not touching it at all and it's interesting because it's very much what you're talking about with the purple martins and then tending the wild is very focused on this as well is that there are lots of uh, species plant species and, and animal species that are semi-domesticated and we work together in harmony and humans aren't uh, away from nature we are part of nature and we yeah. almost as modern human humans need to relearn this relationship oh, and and we have that with the work that you're doing with purple martins uh you know people like i say getting in the dirt and growing some vegetables or flowers is a great start um, so what are your thoughts on that? Because the, the interesting part for me, I feel like the exploitation side is quite easy to see. Like, that's not good. Like clear cutting, like hurts my heart. I hate to say it, but I get real sensitive yeah. when I see stuff like that, it just looks very destructive. But then I myself went the whole other side and was like, well, I'm not supposed to touch it. Like humans are a virus on this planet. And I'm coming around now to the fact that, well, that's not true either. There's got to be a better balance and we can live on this planet in harmony without so much destruction. How do we relearn it? How do you see that? And I feel like you're much more educated on this than I am with all the work that you're doing and in your career. Yeah, I guess the way I see it is that nature is a machine and we're the engineers. Okay. So in the sense that while we are a part of this machine, we also have the ability to uh, make repairs where needed or make changes where needed. And uh, the fact that we're not doing that as effectively or we're so just removed from that idea or from that concept um, is causing, instead of, uh, I guess, instead of fixing the machine, we're just kind of putting band-aids on it or, we're even just playing like a game of Jenga, essentially. It's like, how many pieces can we take out until this thing falls? Um, and uh, yeah, and plus with the, I guess, resources extraction side, depends on it. I mean, they're like definitely clear cutting land, like for mass development or agriculture does suck. Um, it like, there are certain places, I think there's a biologist, his name's EO Wilson. He's like, the guy who wrote the book. Um, he's the guy. And he's a famous ecologist, proposed the idea for what's called half earth. And so like literally if every country just band together to protect 50% of their natural wildlands, then um, if we could still function as a society and the environment could still function to its current quality um, or pre- even previous quality could rebound 
to a degree. Um, so there's that, I think. And so there's a lot of people, like you say, that are on the extraction side or the use side that um, don't really care. They just want to get everything they can get out of it in the short-term benefit and uh, get out as soon as possible. And then you have the, the conservation side, uh, which I have mixed feelings because uh, I've learned tough lessons through them and how we need to protect things. But at the same time, a lot of advocates can be really toxic to the public. Uh, and ad, I mean, and I, you can't blame them because they're very emotional. This is something they're very passionate about. And if something damages it, it hurts them. And so uh, I've dealt with people who I'll, uh, who have hurt or basically shamed other people for not knowing um, certain topics or anything like that. Uh, they've condemned them. They've uh, even threatened them. I mean, with Cecil the lion as a pr great example, everybody like flipped out over that advocates and everything, but people don't realize like lion hunting is a very beneficial thing in Africa. Um, uh, that's a totally different side note and rabbit hole to avoid, but <laughs> just a quick example. But yeah. And so you have kind of these combating forces that aren't working together. And so therefore, I mean, it, no, nothing's going to get done. You're just going to have people playing games, uh, trying to get the pieces they can until the whole thing, until the game's over. And mm -hmm. so when people begin to work with each other, um, they can definitely make a lot more work, get a lot more work done uh, for the benefit of something like this than uh, working against each other. Yeah, I feel you on that completely. I feel like... Um my inaction in the past was kind of because it was between those two polar opposites, you know, it's either I'm not on the use everything you possibly can side, but then that, um, conserve, I want to say conservatory, that's not the right word, conservation side of it. And especially like you said, there are some very, um, very emotional advocates across a whole bunch of stuff, not just conservation, but anything. People are very emotional. and But that can, like you said, for someone who's just walking into this, be incredibly intimidating. And you you get so scared that you're going to do something wrong or say something wrong that yeah. it, it starts, it makes you have inaction. And that's the opposite. I feel like part of the reason I started this podcast is because I want to make all this accessible. And my goal is that people understand that we don't like perfection prevents progress. It's, there's no perfect way of doing something. Find something that you are passionate about or that interests you and start with that. And then when you have that confidence that hopefully it spreads out into other things, because you can't just wake up one day and be like, you know, I'm composting, I'm growing a garden, I don't eat meat, I don't drive a car. I mean, that's so super overwhelming and not possible for anyone to do. So oh, yeah. you who've been, you who's been in this movement and are focusing on Purple Martins and your life in conservation and ecology, what would you suggest for someone who's just now starting to wake up to the climate crisis? And also we have COVID-19 that's almost kind of put us in this weird... <laughs> Uh, for those of us who know about climate change, we kind of always thought something crazy was going to happen. We just maybe didn't know it was going to be a pandemic. So we are in yeah. a very interesting situation right now. What sort of advice would you give someone who's just kind of starting out, starting out a little bit overwhelmed? Uh, we don't want to scare them off. So what yeah. can they do? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, hmm, that's a good one. I always recommend uh, that 
uh, with getting like in getting started with conservation is really easy. Uh, it's not uh, conservation is all these complex things you see in the news um, with people going out and tracking lions in Africa or catching crocodiles in Australia, trekking the Amazon. Um, but conservation also is putting a birdhouse up in your yard, whether it's for bluebirds, whether it's for chickadees. I, with my job, I work with a conservation group based out of Aiken, which is like an hour west of us. And their main goal is just to conserve cavity nesting birds. And they just put birdhouses up either in public places, on private properties, wherever. And they're conserving cavity nesting birds that way. Um, and so I do that. I teach my customers that. Uh, you can also just plant a, uh, something as simple as like a native plant, like I mentioned earlier. Um, do your research with native plants um, and find out which garden centers and stuff like that supply natives and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's very easy. You can read your labels on your pesticides. I mean, it's okay for you to use pesticides. Like, I, I mean, we all have to at some point. Um, you can reduce your plastic. You don't have to completely cut it out. You can still drive an F-150. Um, maybe just like think about how often you're driving it or if you need, if you really need it. I used to drive a Nissan Titan truck and then I just got sick of paying all the gas prices on it. And so I converted to a Subaru and I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's very like getting started with like conservation and backyard stuff is very easy. And a lot of people like view, look at the world view of conservation and think like, Oh, I'm never going to do, do anything like that or see anything like that. So why even try? Mm -hmm. But you have all you have, if you own a home or uh, if you have a yard or anything, you have land that you can do and convert, do stuff to and convert it to benefit the environment. However you choose, whether it's a corner of that property, whether it's the whole thing, um, you can, you have a lot more capability at your disposal, a lot more things you can do than you realize. Um, and great places to start, uh, books. I wish I had them on my shelf, but, uh, there's a guy, his name's Doug Tallamy. He's written a handful of books, um, all about backyard conservation and it's really simple. Nice. Uh, can you give us one thing, one tip? I know it's, there's no priority, but give us one tip that someone can just start today. Just start today. Go, uh, I'd say go buy a birdhouse even though everything everywhere's closed uh, due to COVID-19. I'd say that's a bad tip. Um, <laughs> I'd say, crap. <laughs> you can build a birdhouse. I mean, that's yeah, the thing can. that I'm, I'm trying to get yeah. creative with what we have around the house. You know, yeah. I, I did a video about mulch and, you know, I said, you don't need to go out and buy black mulch. You have leaves in your yard. That's yep. a mulch. You can put that on, you know. You literally just rake your leaves into your flower beds. And exactly. Cool. Grass clippings, you know, get creative. Yeah, you can do that. Um, if you have, I'm just trying to think. Shucks. If you have a birdhouse, put it up. If you have a bird feeder, put it up. And uh, that's literally just letting you encounter the wildlife in your backyard just through birds. Um, but if you have like a brush, you could literally just start a brush pile. It's right now with everybody doing yard work, you have probably a lot of trash in your yard, a lot of natural degradable trash. 
if you're able to and you have like a corner, just pile it all up and that helps all that helps so much wildlife. Birds, lizards, snakes, the harmless ones, not the harmful ones. Uh, <laughs> um even small mammals, they like to get in there. And so and it bugs. helps. Bugs as well. If you don't yeah, want to use absolutely. pesticide, you know, we kinda have um there's enough interesting stuff for all the pests to do at the bottom of our yard that they just don't even bother with our house you know give them other things to do (laughs) oh yeah absolutely i know with like nate like when you do if you do get out you can plant like a native plant native plants can host butterflies and moths and they can host i think a couple hundred species depending on the type of plant and so if you plant like a native tree that's basically a natural bird feeder in and of itself and you'll just all you got to do is just look up and uh, you'll just see all kinds of stuff you would never see in, uh, at your feeders. So nice. What yeah. can we do to help purple martins with purple martins? I'd say, um, do your research and, uh, the easiest thing to do for them is put a birdhouse out, uh, or put per, yeah, put out a purple martin housing system out cause they can come in gourds or in actual boxes. Um, in, the thing with martins is they're a very picky type of bird uh, in high maintenance uh, in our domestication of them. But um, they like to be about 40 feet away from any kind of tree or building. So you need to find a clear area uh, to put a martin house out. Um, and when you do that, just be patient. Um and I'm putting, I've got a couple Martin houses out right now and people like to call me the expert, but I don't have a, I don't have a Martin's nesting in them. <laughs> I'm just the loudest person talking about them, uh-huh. uh, in my area. And so, um, but yeah, with that, uh, yeah, Martin's are take patience. And once you get it, it's, I mean, you literally have a bird that'll be coming to that system for the rest of your life. Uh, they'll come back every year to the same nesting site. It's incredible. I imagine uh, this is why people get so competitive about it because it's yeah. not easy, right? So they're just yeah. like, you know, for the past 30 years, we've had Martins come in. I imagine it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We've had them for so long. And then uh, and then some people want to have like, it's a numbers game with them. And so I've got friends that are putting Martin houses out and some are getting them faster than me. I'm like, you guys suck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, and it, I think that also speaks to just the breeding population here. I don't think it's very healthy uh, mm-hmm. if it takes so long to get martins to nest in a colony. If it was a healthy population, it would probably be more. Uh, it'd probably be a lot faster to have that happen. Um, any any reasons or assumptions you can make as to why it's not healthy? Um, it kind of goes back to that pesticide use, as well as kind of people putting or kind of the farm communities uh, succumbing to urban sprawl, you're losing that habitat. And plus with Martins being so loyal to breeding sites, they're going to come back to that site that they came to where they were born at. So if I have a guy, the only active Martin colony I've found in this area is on the opposite side of Lake Murray uh, out in Saluda. And so knowing that I, that's a 30 minute drive. So I think it's like 20 miles or something like that. I have to wait for a bird to fly. Want to, I got to wait for that colony to saturate and wait for an adventurous bird to want to set up territory of its own. At the same time, I got to work on out competing or keeping all the other competitors out of their uh, colonies. Cause you'll get like bluebirds and other cavity nesters that want to stay in their 
uh, move into their colonies and they'll chase Martins off. So it's, uh, again, Martins are a little high maintenance, but if you love birds, I'm not going to take that personally seen as I am a Martin myself, (laughs) (laughs) my last name. (laughs) It's funny. Whenever I text about it, they all, my autocorrect just puts an apostrophe, uh, where the N and the S go. I was like, no, darn it. (laughs) Um, but yeah. So in that, and then say like you're hearing all this and if like your, your property doesn't have like so much clear space, you can always work with other, uh, either businesses or your governments or, uh, even like churches, public places. Um, cause odds are your community has open space somewhere and you can stick a Martin rack up. Uh, I've done that with bluebird trails working with our city government. I'm, uh, whenever I get done with purple haze and can get funding going, uh, or diverted into, uh, local Martin housing projects. Um, I know our city government would be all about that. I'm going to be working on setting them up here around the lake and around Lexington. So, and, uh, hopefully get people educated and passionate about something they can find in their backyard. Yeah. So how can people find you online? And then also, you know, you mentioned working at the garden center and doing eco tours. How can people connect with you so they can continue to follow the story and learn more about Purple Martins? Uh, So I guess for the Martin tours, uh, hopefully coronavirus won't uh, be a thing by July, but our Martin tours will be offered through Wingard's Market. Uh, and you can go Google it and you'll be able to sign up for a tour on our website. Uh, when we open them up, um, right now signups are closed cause there's just a lot of unknowns. We don't, don't really know yet. Uh, uh, so they'll be able to find us through wingardsmarket.com and then, uh, to follow along with the purple haze film. Um, there's a couple places you can go to our website is purple haze acfmovie.com uh we're on instagram and facebook it's purple for instagram it's purple haze underscore documentary that's the tagline and then the facebook page uh for us excuse me is uh purple haze a conservation film and so great uh, well we'll link everything up in the show notes and make sure we have those right so people can find you and um i really appreciate your time with me zach yeah i appreciate you having me yeah we'll have a great rest of the afternoon i know you're busy in the garden center but also we're kind of trying to figure out this new normal so i hope for the best for both for us both (laughs) awesome cool i appreciate it fiona all right thanks zach you're welcome you have a good one you too so what'd you think I know I've been noticing the birds in my backyard more and more and trying to provide them with shelter, food, and water that may not be available naturally due to residential development. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience while in lockdown for COVID-19. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Join us on our Facebook page and group and over at Instagram. We also have a Patreon account set up at www.eco-interviews.com forward slash podcast. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us reach more people. Thanks for listening and stay safe.